We're in the midst of a healthcare revolution. Digital health is breaking down barriers for patients and providers, changing the way we do business, regulate healthcare reimbursement, and deliver care. From telemedicine solutions to medical devices to AI to innovations we can't even name yet. It's taken years of dedication from innovative leaders to pursue healthcare progress. How did we get here? What's around the corner for digital health? Let's find out together in Trailblazing with Digital Health Pioneers. Welcome to Trailblazing with Digital Health Pioneers. I'm Stephen Bernstein, co-chair of the Digital Health Practice at McDermott Will and Emory. Joining me today is Mickey Tripathi. Mickey serves as the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where he leads development of the federal health IT strategy and coordinates federal health IT policies, standards, programs, and investments. Mickey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Steve. I'm really delighted to be here and, uh, and great to see you again. Good to see you. Look forward to the, the discussion. So you have a distinguished and detailed history with health IT operational matters. You know how the exchange of health information actually works, where it doesn't work, and why. So it's not a surprise you were the perfect choice for the national coordinator at this critical time. I could go on with your background and credentials, which are incredible, but let's get right into the burning questions we have from healthcare leaders. So first, with the information blocking final rules now effective as of April 5th, to what extent do you think they're actually spurring digital data sharing? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I, you know, it'll it'll take time, but I think they absolutely will um, will spur more uh, digital data sharing in a couple of ways. I mean, one I think is just that the you know the high level principle behind it is to you know kind of flip the idea of data sharing from one that is uh, you know about getting permission for every single uh, request for information, even even in contexts where you're quite sure that it's authorized. Um, to one that essentially says that it's an obligation for you as a data holding entity to make information available unless you have a very good reason for thinking that it's either not authorized or that there are other valid reasons that we lay out in the exceptions in the rule um, uh, for, for not sharing that information. So it completely flips the way organizations should think about it. Um, but it's not an overnight thing, right? I think that's one thing that we recognize that it's not a let's flip the switch and now all of a sudden everything is lit up and everyone is thinking about this in a different way. I think it's, it's complicated and parts of it are cultural change, parts of it you know, involve technology and infrastructure. And so it'll take time to get there, which is, I think, why it was really important to get that rule out and finalized into the market so the market can start moving. Got it. And just as a practical matter, and you have a lot of experience in this space, many hospitals, they don't, they don't have a single information system. I think there's this misguided belief out there that, oh, they press a button and the data kind of moves. And the systems, I mean, many, most hospital systems have multiple EMRs, PAC systems, other kinds of technologies. And when a patient or another provider wants the data, those hospitals have to have all of that integrated. Any sense of how hospitals and health systems are, and even medical groups are faring as they handle these requests and monumental, monumental data integration efforts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's highly varied, just like our healthcare system, um, which is to say that, you know, that every place, and I think as, as all of us know, you know, sort of every place that you go 
has its own unique configuration of systems, as, as you're pointing out. And some of it's even, you know, within the four walls of a hospital system where they've got all sorts of different, you know, types of systems, diagnostic equipment, diagnostic systems, um, PAC systems, whatever it is. Some of it is, you know, under one enterprise. Others is just sort of a um, loose, you know, constellation of these things that are connected, you know, in the back end um, with, with different types of technologies. And then you have, you know, increasingly systems that, um, that, that uh, comprise multiple different, you know, healthcare uh, sites and different EHR systems. So it really is, you know, just sort of, it's hard to characterize, you know, sort of uh, what it looks like in general, because, it, you know, because the average doesn't reflect what, you know, the wide variation is. Um, I think that, you know, that what we've seen, and I think what we're going to continue to see is that every place will figure that out on its own. And there are a variety of ways for them to do that. Some of them can try to, you know, push more and more under the umbrella of their EHR system. Others can have some kind of, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, intermediary type of, um, you know, software that can uh, be, you know, sort of the integration engine for all of that kind of information and then serve it up in a, you know, sort of a single way. And for others, maybe they'll have multiple points of access for different types of information. Um, you know, from our perspective, we think that there's just a ton of innovation um, to happen there. And, and what we don't want to do is dictate that from the top down because we recognize that, you know, every place is different in every way, every place is going to have its own way of efficiently figuring out, you know, how to do that. I would point out that payers are also going through the same thing as you think about the CMS interoperability rule and the requirement for them to make information available via Fire API. Um, you know, the uh, when you talk to payers, they're going through the same exact thing, which is information lives in all these different places. And now they're being asked to consolidate that, put that through a Fire-based API. So it's, it's not unique to hospital systems by any means. Right, and related to that, I mean, are you, do you, what is sort of an early access um, sense from ONC about how this is actually working? I mean, are you seeing, do you, can you have data runs? Are you getting ex information from hospitals that they're seeing data requests from other hospitals as patients move from place to place or hospitals to physicians or plans looking for data from the hospitals? What kind of information flow does ONC have? Not in any uh, you know, nefarious or spying way, but just in terms of getting a feel for data movement. Yeah, we don't have any, you know, sort of active monitoring um, in that way that allows us to, you know, sort of uh, be able to monitor that in, in near time or even anything with, you know, high frequency. We don't have really have any mechanisms um, for doing that. And the information blocking, uh, you know, sort of approach is all about, you know, by exception or by reporting from the market itself, like like other, you know, sort of regulatory and legal constructs as well. So really, you know, from for, from our perspective. Um, you know, the, uh, if, the, you know, no news is, is good news in a way, if people are complaining, that must mean it's happening. And that to me, the, you know, the important thing is the, is, is the importance that places on education and outreach to the market about what they ought to be able to expect um, in the way of data sharing. And if they feel that there is, you know, some interference um, that, uh, that, that violates uh, the information blocking rule, they should absolutely file a complaint and report it. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that in a minute because I think a lot of people are curious about how that's going to play out. But I, I guess, and maybe this is because you and I go way back, but I have the impression that that your administration of ONC is, it's already, I mean, I can see it. It's very open. You're out and about having conversations. You obviously have been, I'll call it on the other side, where you've been an implementer of data systems and you've seen the, the sometimes clunkiness and difficult of doing that. I guess my question for you is, are you 
and you've done this already, are you going to continue having kind of open forums where ONC can hear from the providers and the plans about not blocking issues, but just logistical issues about how difficult this may or may not be? I'm curious if what the plan is for that. Yeah, absolutely. So we do that on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, one of the things I don't think I fully appreciated um, being on the other side, as you put it, being on the outside, um, is how much of that, uh, you know, sort of stakeholder outreach in a very proactive way goes on with the ONC team. And now, particularly since, you know, with the, um, the information blocking rule and the, app- and the applicability date, we've got you know, a clinical team and a policy team that is, you know, sort of doing virtual roadshows every week with, you know, large and small stakeholder organizations. So uh, for anyone who's, you know, who's listening to this and viewing this, if you have interest in that, you know, please reach out to us and and we'll figure out a time to make our experts available to be able to answer questions and, um, uh, you know, and to to be able to educate everyone on, you know, on the rule and and, and where we are on that. The The other things that I would point to is we have the ongoing FAQs, which we are, you know, continuously working on. We get, you know, a ton of questions we try to synthesize and process those. Then we go through um, internal tortured um, <laughs> discussions of what is actually the question being asked. How do we crisply state that in as clear a way as possible? And then how do we actually respond to that in a way that you know that the attorneys, like at McDermott, will you know interpret and be able to say, okay, I understand what they're saying here, so that you know we can now you can now work with your customers on on uh, on how to do that. Um, I think you raise a good point. Is that you know, and, and we'll just sort of take this as it comes. As we see what the feedback and the complaint process looks like in the, in the FAQs, um, is that the opportunity for us to have larger conference type things, let's say, where you bring together stakeholders with a specific, with a specific self focus on information blocking or on aspects of information blocking that, um, you know, that, that uh, we want to have a little bit more participatory, participatory um, to make sure that we're you know, sort of getting uh, you know, clear and raw feedback from everyone. So that's something that we can certainly think about. Good. Thank, thank you very much. I think that's really important because there are some gray zone, a lot of gray zone questions. Nothing okay. is ever perfect in regulations. One things that one of the things that you have said is you've talked about kind of the spirit of interoperability as opposed to nitty gritty and kind of a phased in approach. And you've kind of elaborated on that here a little bit. I'd just be interested in knowing a little bit more because I think that does inform which we'll get to in a second about the enforcement posture. What what do you mean by spirit of interoperability versus, you know, the nitpicky kinds of things? Yeah, I think, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, having lived through as, you know, as, as many of us, including, you know, including you and the team um, there have, have, you know, lived through the meaningful use experience where we, you know, went through, we had, um, you know, what I think at the end of the day was a highly successful program. When you think about, you know, how much change, um, uh, was, you know, was, was put into the most complex part of our economy over a relatively short period of time. Um, you know, in 2010, we were sort of the laggards in the industrialized world um, with respect to health, health information technology. And now I think it's safe to say that we are absolutely the leaders, um, you know, in health information technology uh, around the world in a relatively short time with a tremendous amount of resource invested on the public and private side and $40 billion and counting um, on just on the public side. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we found in that process is, you know, we defined very specific rules for meaningful use and we had the phase one, phase two, phase three. And there was this idea of the spirit that's even inculcated in the name, right? Meaningful use. We should be doing these things and everyone is going to be on board with, you know, the spirit of what we're trying to accomplish here. And that what we found is that you get interpretation of the very fine print of I'm only going to do this and nothing more because that's all the regulation requires me to do. 
Um, and that, you know, I think that that was sort of eye-opening for a lot of us that, you know, that, uh, um, that everyone will look at it in a very, very narrow compliance oriented way. Um, and, and I think, you know, to me, I mean, I wasn't a part of the conversations, um, but, you know, in, in the run-up to the passage of the 21st Century Cures Act, but, you know, as I read it and as we're looking at it, that's very much saying, we, you know, there's a spirit here that needs to be, you know, completely adopted by the industry. And that's what I meant by that flipping the, you know, flipping the way that, that an organization thinks about it, that thinking about this in that I'm only going to dole out little pieces of information <laughs> um, under great duress. And to say, you completely have to flip the way you're thinking about it. And we're actually going to put regulatory muscle behind that. Got it. And, and you had referenced this before that in terms of enforcement and information blocking, I know there's a ONC feedback and inquiry portal and a tab for reporting information blocking. Has that seen action yet? Yeah, it has. Um, so, you know, there was, I think there was, they, there was sort of a trickle because um, we had opened that up a while ago. Um, I, not sure, not sure exactly when we did, but I think it probably started with the with the um, NPRM. It may have even started before then with the passage of the 21st Century Cures Act, when it was clear that ONC was you know was being um, uh, was required under the law to implement uh, you know information blocking. We may have opened up you know the portal back then, and so um, you know I think if you look at the high level data, um, you know you start to see there's a little bit of a trickle there, but you know certainly. In this year and in the last couple, in the last month or two, I think you know there has definitely been an uptick. Um, not surprisingly, um, right now, you know, especially you know with April fifth passing, um, there there yep. has been an uptick. Yep. And on the enforcement front, and I know you've talked about sort of ONC being policy and OIG being enforcers, but I'm curious about how what the plan is. I, I know there are no penalty regulations out yet. Um, but I'm curious about the methodology of prioritizing investigation of information blocking complaints um, and how that's going to really work and and where where what the thinking is about that, because I yeah. think people are concerned about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a um, that, you know, it's totally fair question that. Um, that you know we don't have all the answers to yet, but I think we're you know we're uh, we're very focused on it and figuring out you know sort of the work with our with our federal partners. So just to break it down a little bit, um, you know ONC is responsible for policy, and then OIG, as you pointed out, is responsible for enforcement um, for most cases. And I'll I'll come back to that that point in a second. And then and then you have the you know the penalties or the appropriate disincentives for the providers. So the penalties are spelled out um, in the law, I think for technology developers and for health information networks, which is a financial penalty, it's specified there. So that's relatively clear. For the, um, for the providers, there, is the, there are the so-called appropriate disincentives. Um, and I'll come back to that point in a second as well. So just to point out that you've got those, those things that are all, you know, need to be, um, you need to spell out the appropriate disincentives and, and as well as the, the enforcement stuff. For, um, for the enforcement, things that are related to a technology vendor certification those would be things that um, ONC would be responsible for enforcement because we are the ones who you know, own the certification process. So if there's anything related to information blocking that directly implicates a condition of certification or certification of a system for a technology vendor, that's where we ourselves could, you know, could determine the certification to the extent that, um, it, you know, that we use that lever. But for anything else, 
it is, you know, it does go to OIG. And I think, as you know, um, you know, there is a draft rollout um, that OIG has. Um, you know, I can't speak for them. My understanding is that, you know, that they anticipate having a final rule, um, you know, toward the end of the uh, of the calendar year. Uh, again, don't hold me to that, but that's just, you know, our, our understanding. Yeah. I think one important thing to, you know, to sort of recognize in that, um, though, is you know, obviously we'll be working together with them on, on that process. But two other points. One is that um, in terms of priorities, um, I know that from time to time, I think that OIG and OCR have given indications of how they think about, you know, priorities in terms of enforcement. Don't know whether that's, you know, something that they're going to do here. Um, it is very much case by case. Um, I think as, as we know, because we, it just recognizes the highly heterogeneous nature of, of the market. Um, so that's one point is, you know, we don't really know exactly what that'll look like. The other point I think is important for, you know, for all of the, all of your viewers to know is that, um, is that the law says the Secretary of Health and Human Services will define appropriate disincentives. So it's important to realize that the scope of that is HHS-wide. Um, people tend to say, oh, focus on, on CMS and think that, oh, okay, it's only CMS and payment. The law specifically says the secretary, so that could be distance, appropriate disincentives across any HHS um, programs. Yeah, got it. So let me ask you, uh, it, this is kind of a nitpicky question, but it's it's similar to the kind of gray zones that we've talked about. I'd expect nothing else, Steve. <laughs> I know, you know, we've we've been in the gray zones before, but we've gotten good answers. We work together to good answers. So maybe we'll have the same thing here. Um, questions like posting of test results. Th this has been sort of a curiosity, I think, in the industry where I think there is a degree of paternalism to some extent about posting test results for things that where there's bad results. Someone gets diagnosed with cancer. And the lab test is clear about that. It gets posted to the portal and the patient understandably is nervous and they're sitting on their portal, refresh, refresh, and getting it quickly, almost before the doctor can actually get, certainly before the doctor can get to the patient by phone. And I'm just curious about those kinds of questions because those were things that I think really posed a difficult conundrum, a very real one, not to get in the way of patients getting information, but really just trying to take care of people and their psyche, frankly, when they have difficult conditions. I'm just curious about your thoughts on that one, because that one got a lot of play pre-April 5th. Yeah, no, I, and, and um, I, I agree. I think it's a really tricky issue. And I think it's, um, uh, you know, and it's one that I completely understand uh, you know, sort of the, the very, you know, sort of uh, strong feelings that people have about it on the provider side, as well as on the patient side. And, you know, my, my daughter, I think, as you know, is a doctor. Um, and, you know, and she's a pediatrician at a large hospital here in Boston and has pointed out to me situations of a test result coming, the patients are actually sitting down in the emergency department. And how does someone run down to the emergency to the waiting room in the emergency department to talk to the patients before they're able to access it? on their phone. And by the way, that isn't in response to information blocking. That was because that was a hospital policy before information blocking. So mm -hmm. I think you know, that just points to a couple of different things. There are many hospitals who have already implemented this as policy as a matter of direct patient engagement and transparency. I think, you know, for us, um, you know, I think that the way, the reason that we came down pretty strongly on that is to say that um, it isn't a binary choice. It isn't that you either have a paternalistic from a, you know, from a patient perspective, meaning that the provider will decide when they are going to do this under rules that only they, you know, sort of know, and that varies by hospital system, um, or it's, you know, completely without any engagement with the patient, 
Um, and, and so that, you know, so that you um, have a system that allows patients to have all the bad experiences that one can imagine in those scenarios you're describing. You're describing. Um, you know, we think it's uh, very likely, and indeed there are many provider organizations as well as technology vendors who are building capabilities to say, how can I ask, work with a patient to say, your results may be available before I am able to talk to you. Do you want that to happen? If not, sign this, check this box, and we will delay them um, in that specific case, for example. You right. can imagine those kinds of technologies and those kinds of approaches being built where you really just engage the patient um, to have that conversation with them. Right. Yeah. And I've seen those notices. I mean, I've seen them go out saying, look, you may get your results before the doctor can talk to you. Don't fret. The doctor will get to you or you can call right. the doctor or vice versa, as you're suggesting. And I think that's that's what's great to see. And I'm not just saying this to you. That is what's great to see with ONC in terms of just being open and practical. There's there's a human side to this. And it's not sort of rote that the, the regs have to be exactly implemented this way. And I think that's why I'd asked you about the spirit of interoperability and what that really means. And I just knowing you personally, I have the sense that you're working hard to make sure that that cultural and human side of healthcare delivery doesn't get lost in the technology. Because that that is a very much a, an American spirit that's important. Right. So I, I can see that. So yeah. that's good. I think, as you know, my parents are doctors, my daughter's a doctor, <laughs> and I've lived from a professional perspective in the provider setting, uh, you know, most of my career, uh, you know, working on these nitty gritty kind of issues. So I completely sympathize with the need for us to be practical and for all, us always to always take into context, how does it happen today? Because today is a highly imperfect system and you right. don't get, want to get caught with the tyranny of the status quo because the status quo isn't great. So let's not get caught up in that either. So let me ask you a question. You alluded to it before. I'll go off script and to the extent it's been possible with COVID. What's a, what's a conundrum dinner table conversation at, with your family about these issues? Seriously, what's the most challenging question I think your daughter's asked you on this? I'm curious about that. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, certainly one was about this lab results thing and about, you know, about, uh, about results and, you know, sort of the back and forth on that, um, where her initial take was, Absolutely not. The government shouldn't be telling us that, you know, that we have to make those available. And then you have a little bit more of a nuanced conversation and, you know, a little bit better understanding of, okay, there are other ways to, to think our way through this. Uh, I think the other, the other one is, uh, is about, you know, sort of the whole app world um, and being able to, you know, download your information and the, you know, the couple of different dimensions of that. One is the, the, the just inherent confusion um, because technology has outpaced our regulatory regime, I think, as you know, being a HIPAA expert, um, that you know the data now sort of magically crosses the border from HIPAA land to outside HIPAA land in ways that patients have no understanding of, nor is it reasonable to expect that they would. Um, you know, just sort of the you know the confusion about you know on my iPhone, I would have the ability to download my record onto the Apple Health record or download or have access to my record through the Epic MyChart um, patient portal app, both of which I have both of those capabilities on my iPhone, one of them protected by HIPAA, the other one not. And if you look at on the iPhone, it looks almost identical, right? I mean, that is unbelievably confusing. <laughs> um, yeah. So we've had those conversations about what, you know, A, you know, what, do, what kind of risks am I taking that I didn't even realize? 
And B, you know, how much do patients actually really want to do this? And they're, you know, my, my family is all over the map. You know, there's some who are like, I don't really want to get involved in that. Um, you know, I just want to make sure that my providers are sharing the information. Um, whereas, you know, that also, I think we need to recognize that that's condition and age specific as well. If you're young and you have light needs, it's like, sure, I share everything on Facebook, on Twitter, whatever, I don't really care. Um, <laughs> once you get older and you have more needs, you may care a little bit more about privacy, but also may want to be able to you know, have a little bit greater control over the information to be able to do other things that, um, uh, that, uh, that don't even occur to you now because you have very light um, healthcare uh, needs. I'm, I'm glad you raised that because I, I dutifully went on the patient portal of the health system I go to, and there are big buttons there that says, you know, you can get your information. And I, I kind of only really knew about that because I'm, I'll say I'm in the business. And so I went there and I, I, I was very close. I had my phone out. I had the portal out. I'm looking at the buttons and I'm thinking exactly as you said, do I really want to do this? And why, why do I want to walk around with my phone? I mean, unless I was traveling internationally or something and I needed it, I can just get into the portal from wherever I am anyway. And I, I stopped. I did not go that far. And I'm curious, as a personal question, you can choose to answer it or not. Have, have you, it sounds like some of your family members have thought about it, but have you worked to move your data from a health system into your phone? No, so I personally I access I access the MyChart. I'm not pushing a brand, but my provider happens to use Epic. I use the MyChart patient portal app, which again is is protected by HIPAA because it's provided to me by the by the provider. And right. that's all I use. I don't download the record with my wife. She had, at the time I didn't have an iPhone, and when we you know I worked when I was with the Argonaut project, we worked on the specification that Apple implemented. And so when that went live, you know I quickly went to her and said. Hey, let's let's take your iPhone and download your record. It'll be really cool. And um, and so we did it. Like it happened, you know, it worked like in two minutes. It was beautiful and simple. And then it was like, well, now what? There it is. To your point, it's like, well, there it is. Now what? And what I said to her is, now delete it <laughs> because it's not protected by anymore. And you know, you have all those issues. Uh, just last point on this is. I, you know, I spoke to, um, you know, to app developers, uh, you know, earlier in the week. And to me, the whole part of this model, um, you know, uh, developing and flourishing in whatever way it will is the apps is to say, what we need to be able to have is a whole app ecosystem form so that you have a reason for downloading the information because you want to make it available to other app to apps and services that you trust that provide you with more information than perhaps you could get directly from your provider. That's, that's the hope and the promise, I think, of all of yeah, us. Yeah, sweat the details. So curious, what are some of ONC's goals for the rest of 2021-22 and your own personal goals as the national coordinator? Yeah, so, um, you know, certainly with respect to 21-22, let's see, well, getting, getting past the pandemic and doing everything we can to do that is, you know, top job for sure. Um, we're indirectly related, obviously, we're not, you know, um, sort of a, a frontline agency in that way, but, um, you know, supporting everything we can to make scheduling easier, to make, um, uh, you know, public health systems, we're doing work with, uh, with the CDC on public health systems, that's, you know, that, that is always going to be job one um, for, you know, certainly for the foreseeable future, um, or for the near future. But, you know, beyond that, um, you know, a couple of things are, you know, really important. Um, health equity, and we've got, you know, sort of a lot of focus right now in this concept of, you know, what I've been calling health equity by design, um, which we have to further define. Um, it's something as I've laid, that I've laid out as a goal and a principle that says, 
Health equity by design means that you designed it into the fundamental way that you architect the system so that you're not having to go back and think about, oh yeah, we need to think about health equity, that it's a way that the system functions inherently. So it, it, it calls up, it calls forward or brings forward or exposes issues of healthcare disparity and then allows people to, in, a, in an easy way or, or more natural way, respond to those in a way that helps to you know, reduce those healthcare disparities. So that's one. The second is getting us to a place where people from with the information blocking rule start to move beyond that narrow compliance focus, which they absolutely have to in the near term. I'm not pretending they don't. I mean, there's real civil monetary penalties involved. And, uh, you know, and you'll be advising all your clients that this is a real regulation that's got real penalties. Um, there is compliance associated with it for sure. So I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, sort of gloss that over. But how do we get organizations so that they think, think about the strategic opportunities that it enables? Because that burden that's placed on you and the obligation to share information is the obligation on the 10 other partners that you've been struggling getting information from that you now have the opportunity to get information from and the ways to engage patients in a way that you you know didn't really think about before but you now have the opportunity for. So that's the second thing. And then the third is making uh, much more forward progress on TEFCA so that we have a much better roadmap for what's nationwide interoperability going to look like over the next five years. I think we, you know, we owe it back to the industry to get Tefka, um, you know, sort of uh, providing much more clarity to the market on that. Very good. Well, thank you very much for joining us and offering updates from ONC and your thoughts about the future in health data and digital health. Thank you again. We really appreciate your time right. and, and insight. To learn more about the ONC's efforts on health IT, data exchange, and more, visit www.healthit.gov. And for help understanding ONC's developments and how they may impact your business, visit McDermott's Regulatory Sprint to Coordinated Care Resource Center at mwe.com backslash sprint ready. <laughs>